Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us this Sunday. When our kids were pretty small, we lived out in Northern Virginia. So when we'd visit my parents, their grandparents in Seattle, it would be a five hour flight. Trying to keep little kids occupied on a plane for five hours is exhausting. And near the end of one flight, I could tell I was just about out of help for Graham. And so I said, hey, bud, let's just, let's just walk around the plane and see what we can find. And so we were walking around and we ended up this one place where they have the exit that you go out. Now, younger people won't get this. Older people will remember. There was a time when planes just showed one movie. They would have big screens in the center or up above. You didn't stream it on the thing. And there was a movie playing. And the section right in front of us, Graham noticed people started kind of hitting their headphones and we thought it was funny. And one of them hit the call attendant button and a flight attendant came up and listened to the man and nodded. So she walks right back toward us. And when she saw me standing there with my son, she got this very angry look on her face. Apparently about eye level to my toddler son was a panel of very colorfully lit buttons behind a little plastic shield. One of those buttons controlled the audio for that section of the plane, and my son had obviously pushed it. It wasn't enough for her to reprimand me privately, however. She had to get on the intercom and say, parents, would you please watch your children? We had a father here with his son. He pushed one of the buttons, knocked out the sound, so I have to rewind the movie to where the sound went out. Well, they had started the movie a little bit late, so the flight ended before the movie did. I was not the most popular person on that plane, <laughs> which would explain my wife's reaction when we landed. And she said, you know, Gary, it's really a full plane. I'm gonna take the girls and go down this aisle. Why don't you and Graham exit that aisle? Uh, well, I probably deserve it. So I go, all right, bud, let's go. And he said, daddy? I go, yeah, bud, I think I'm gonna go with mom. <laughs> oh, dude, you're the one that pushed the button. He goes, yeah, but daddy, you shouldn't have let me. You should have known I would push the button. <laughs> You know what, he's right. I didn't notice the buttons, but if you leave a toddler boy in front of a panel of colorfully lit buttons, eye level, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when they will push the button. Even if they think it's gonna explode the plane, the curiosity is there, they're going to push the button. And if I didn't want him to push the button, I should have had him focus on something else. I couldn't just leave him there standing in front of it. If we're honest with ourselves, we all have colorfully lit buttons flashing in our eyes. And we know if we sit in front of that button, we're gonna push it. It might impact our health, it might impact our reputation, our finances, the consequences might be enormous, but we're standing there, we're saying, don't push it, don't push it, don't push it. But we know we will if we stay in front of those buttons. So how do we handle those buttons? My answer might surprise you this morning. I think one of the most powerful tools God gives us to avoid those buttons is pleasure. I used to think pleasure was the problem. I used to think pleasure was behind the button. My life changed and I believe your life will change. When you recognize that pleasure isn't the problem, pleasure can actually be the solution. 
We're in a series called Summer Camp, and we recognize after our kids have had a long year of school, sometimes it's great just to get away. They can have fun. They can enjoy themselves. That's why we do VBS. That's why they do camp. But can I just say to the adults, the same thing is true for us. If we live lives of all responsibility, all duty, all work, and no play, we're going to find ourselves in front of those buttons, and the point will come when we will probably try to push one. I thought of this about the first time I visited Houston. Of course, I lived there for 12 years. This is before I moved there. It was in the middle of August. I had two churches that were bringing me out. I spoke in a sermon one morning and then in the evening doing a spiritual formation function for their staff. And I was in the heart of marathon racing in those days. And I was religious with my schedule. I had a fall marathon coming up. I was supposed to run six miles. And since I was preaching in the morning and teaching, I knew I'd have to do it in the afternoon, in the middle of August, in Houston. Now, nobody who lives in Houston would run in the middle of the afternoon, in the middle of August, if they didn't want it to be their last run. Uh, it's just crazy, 100 degrees, 95% humidity. And I saw the numbers, but I was coming there from Seattle, and I thought, you know, I'm going from an air-conditioned car to an air-conditioned hotel to an air-conditioned church. It didn't feel that bad, and it was only six miles. So I set off. I didn't have a bottle of water. I would never carry a bottle of water for a six-mile run in Seattle. But a mile in, I realized, this feels different. It felt like somebody was taking a hairdryer, blowing it directly down my throat. At a mile and a half, I started to get desperate. I saw a half-empty bottle of Coke lying in the ditch, and I'm actually tempted. It's so gross, but it's wet. I need something wet. No, you cannot fall that far. Keep going. And so I did. I said, I'm not going to fall that far, but at three miles, I'm thinking, this is life-threatening. And so I saw a mom in front of her house playing with her kids and there was a hose coiled up. And so I walked up and I'm so embarrassed because I'm dripping wet and I'm just like, I'm so sorry. I'm not from around here, but I'm just really thirsty. Can I take a drink from your hose? She goes, oh, sure, absolutely. So I turn it on and because I'm embarrassed being there, I immediately put it up to my mouth. Who knows how long that water had been boiling in that plastic hose, how much bacteria had can see, I mean, it was, just, it was just so disgusting. And as I'm drinking this down, in the back of my mind, I'm hearing this warning, Gary, you are so gonna regret this. Three hours from now, the gastrointestinal devastation you'll experience is gonna make you wish you were dead. But the other half of my brain was saying, I don't care. I'm so thirsty, I need to deal with this immediate thirst. Once I'm not thirsty, I'll deal with whatever the consequences are. I just have to have a drink. Now I stand here this morning, a bottle of water right there, fully hydrated. The thought of a half empty bottle of Coke in the ditch is gross beyond belief. The thought that I would just immediately put that hose on, what am I even thinking of? And I can look back and say, Gary, where is your willpower? Where is your self-control? How weak you are to be tempted by such gross stuff. That's one approach. And that's the approach I took for a lot of my life. But it changed when I took a step back. I said, Gary, why did you let yourself get so thirsty? that something that should be repugnant actually became a temptation. 
See, don't we often focus on the moment of willpower, the temptation, without ever asking ourselves, why did I get in that thirsty situation? And when we live lives that are all responsibility, all work, and all duty, we risk making ourselves so thirsty that when a button is flashing, we're suddenly susceptible to pushing it. Now, why, why do we do this? I grew up uh, in a church that, well, it was just, the world seemed like a dangerous place to me. And there are verses that would lead you to conclude that. Let's look at a couple. First John 2, 15 says, do not love the world or anything in the world. And you can say, well, we're just supposed to be spiritual beings. Pray, meditate, read our Bible, worship. Anything else is in the world, and, and I'm told I'm not supposed to love that. And then James says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. I don't want to be God's enemy. I don't want to have anything to do with the world. Worldliness is so bad, but these aren't the only two verses in the Bible. In fact, there's another verse written by the same John that might help us look at this a little differently. John 3, 16 says this, for God so loved the world. Why would John in his epistle say, do not love the world or anything in the world? And in his gospel, same man, say God so loved the world. Some people might say, well, obviously different words in the Greek translated the same way, so it comes out like that. Read the Greek New Testament. Exact same words, world cosmos in the Greek. Love, same derivative of love from agape. What is going on here is when John says God so loved the world, he's using cosmos to refer to the earth as God created it. And when God created the earth, what did he say? Not just that it's good, it is very good. God loved the world as he designed it to be used. The word world elsewhere in the New Testament is used in contradistinction to the earth as something that is opposite of God, systems that oppose God. They take the goodness of God's earth and they twist it and pervert it, and so it becomes offensive to God. So two clear examples, there are passages, and this bugs some Christians in some traditions, but there are passages in the Bible that celebrate the gift of wine. That's enjoying the earth. There are also more passages that warn against drunkenness. That's the world. It's taking something good from the earth and twisting it. So now it opposes God. Sexual intimacy is another one. Between a husband and wife in marriage, the Bible celebrates it. There's a whole book in the Bible celebrating that. Outside of marriage, that same kind of pleasure is now part of the world. It's in opposition to God. And so it becomes offensive to God. But the condemnation of perverting the earth isn't a condemnation of enjoying the earth. We're told in 1 Timothy 6, 17, God richly supplies, not sparingly, not, you had pleasure last year. You can go 2023 without pleasure. You get a little bit here or a little taste there. Paul's view to God richly supplies us with religious things, spiritual things, 
No, church leading, no. All things, why? So that we can serve him? So that we can just be pawns? No, to enjoy. It's an amazing verse. God richly supplies us with all things and the purpose is so that we enjoy them. God is not against the earth. He is not against pleasure. If we take the New Testament together, what he's saying is that we need to learn to enjoy the earth without loving the world. Does that make sense? Our call is to learn how to enjoy the earth without loving the world. The problem is that we've taken verses condemning loving the world to condemning loving the earth and it really messes us up. But we're told to preach a different message. In 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 6, Paul says this, for everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Now, I can't thank God for something that I'm abusing. So that qualifies it. But then notice what he says, if you point these things out to the brothers, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus. There's a time when I was a much younger believer, I thought I'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus if I point out everything you're not supposed to do. Don't touch that, don't look at that, don't do that, don't enjoy that, don't taste that, that Christians are known for what we say, don't, 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 and Paul is saying, no, you'll be a good minister, Timothy, when you teach people to enjoy the earth without loving the world. Become a worshiper, become a thankful person. See, it goes back to how you view why God created this earth. There's really two approaches. Do you think God created this world as a obstacle course? He created so many pleasures, so many different ways to experience pleasure just so that he could test us. Can you say no to this? Can you say no to that? Can you say no to that? Can you look at that button and not push it? Some people view God that way. He tempts us all the time, but says don't enjoy or this is the biblical view. God created us capable of so many pleasures because he loves us, because he's kind, because he delights in us, because our pleasure gives him pleasure. Look at the way he made us. How many different pleasures there are, the, the pleasure of sight. People that just get lost looking at a brilliant painting that just fills their souls. I did a couple books with Michael W. Smith and. Um, he had this nice Escalade and an amazing sound system. And he put in a CD of an album he was working on. And man, when you hear in a small place like that, the harmony and the melody, and the, it was just amazing. It just kind of floods your souls. But there's the pleasure of intellectual pleasure. Those of you like to do Sudoku pleasures, adrenaline pleasure. People like to go fast or bungee jump. There's relational pleasure. A few weeks ago, I was visiting my son, walking my grandson toward the ocean. And when you got a little boy that takes your hand, there's nowhere else on earth I wanna be. Relational pleasure is some of the best pleasure that there can be. So did God give us sight simply so we wouldn't walk off a cliff or so that we could look at the mountains of Colorado and just be in awe? at how beautiful this world is? Did he give us a sense of smell just so that we wouldn't eat a rotten piece of meat? 
or so that we could really enjoy that apple pie just as it comes out of the oven? Did he give us the sense of touch so that we would know when a mosquito is inviting us or, or, or a fire is burning us or as an act of great pleasure and relational connecting? Look at those studies where orphans that were not touched, how that impacts them or how they've done studies of elderly people often die much sooner when they stop being touched with healthy touches. Our senses aren't just to protect us. There to nurture us and lead us to worship that God designed us to experience pleasure that he created us to experience. And that's where I wanna come around to this. One of the reasons I care so much about how you view pleasure is that your view of pleasure directly relates to your view of God. If you have a wrong view of pleasure, you probably have a distorted view of God. Some people look at God as an antagonist. How do you look at God today? Is he an antagonist or is he a friend? Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. I don't use you like a piece of Kleenex and throw you away. I call you friends. But sometimes it's hard for us to embrace it. So Paul stresses in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul's, his whole gospel rests on this. God is for you. He's not against you. And those who go far in Christ really just have that sense of Christ's presence about them. They're empowered by God. They just have this freedom and this joy. You know what they have in common? They believe that God is really into them. I think of King David. Talk about a guy who could think God would be angry with him, but look at what he says in Psalm 35. The Lord be exalted who delights in the well-being of his servants. I'm his servant, but he delights in my well-being. He wants it to go well with me. Second Samuel 22:20. also David. God brought me out into a spacious place. Why? He needed a king. He needed a general, he needed a warrior, he needed to use me. Well, yeah, but he brought him out because he delighted in me. If you're in Christ, adopted into his family, do you believe that God delights in you? He's not just putting up with you. He delights in you so that your pleasure even gives him pleasure. Because see, when we don't do that, I find Christians, they put the things of the world against God rather than seeing them as gifts from God. Young moms do this all the time. They have this, they have this baby. They've never known a love like this. They've never known a connection like this. They're overwhelmed. And they'll often ask me as a pastor, Gary, is it possible for me to love my baby more than I love God? I say, don't worry, God has a cure for that. It's called adolescence. It will pass. I'm sorry, teens, but it's kind of true. But what I'll say to these moms is, that's the wrong question. The question isn't, can I love my baby more than I love God? The question is, do you see this baby as a test or as a gift? 
I want to get at their view of God because what is happening when a mother is nursing a baby, the oxytocin being released from her brain, the baby, the baby into her, it's a bonding chemical. It's called the cuddle chemical, loyalty, affection, warmth. And it makes sense to me. God is a brilliant creator. He knows this baby is going to destroy her sleep, cause a lot of pain, obliterate her social schedule. And you say, how do I get this? To, to tolerate this being. And he floods her brain with this oxytocin that is overwhelming so that she's not gonna get the same pop when she reads the book of Leviticus. She's just not. That doesn't mean she loves the baby more than she loves God. It's just God has created a wonderful thing. I'd say, enjoy it. Thank God that you know a love like this. Appreciate it. It's not a test. It's a gift. God is for you. Singles struggle with this sometimes because of the message the church gives them. Oh, the reason you're not married is you want it too much. And, and, and I think what kind of whacked out view of God is that? That because I want something, he's not going to give it to me. So I have to make myself not want it. And when I don't want it, then he gives it to me? Seriously. You think God messes with us like that? Can I point out that it was when Adam was walking with God in the cool of the garden, Adam could see God like you can see me. He could hear God as clearly as you can hear me. We don't get to have that experience with God. And yet in that intimate situation, it was God who said to Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. I want you to share this life. Really wanting to be married it's not a form of idolatry. It's surrendering to God's creative order. Just honor him in the way you pursue marriage and in who you choose to marry. I look at it like this. Uh, my oldest daughter, as a young girl, fell in love with the American Girl dolls. Anybody remember those? I don't know if they're still around. Samantha was her favorite doll. She loved to read. She loved history. And it was brilliant marketing back then. They would send out these 11 by 17 catalogs. It was a fold out that would have the doll that's like this tall. Allison would sleep with it. She loved them. This was pre my sacred marriage book days. We had no money. And those things were like 110, 120 bucks. It was just way beyond what we could afford. And Samantha's clothes cost more than my clothes. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And so I would cut out pictures of Samantha and paste them on cardboard so she would have, and then popsicle sticks so she'd have sort of popsicle puppets. But Allison was content and she liked it, but we knew, you know what, she, she, we really want to get her the real thing. And the other two kids were young enough where we thought they're not really comparing what we spend yet. So why don't we really splurge on Allison? We'll get her this doll, we'll get her some clothes. I'll never forget that Christmas morning how many Christmases I've been through, I couldn't even begin to recall. I won't forget that one because I was sitting there when Allison picked up the present that had Samantha. And I stopped and she starts unwrapping it and she sees it, Samantha, and her whole face lights up with delight and joy and she squeals out. She gets Samantha out of the box and she's hugging her and changing her and putting her down and picking up, carrying her around all day long. And it made me so happy that Allison was so happy with this doll. What would have made me frustrated is if Allison had left Samantha in the box. 
So Allison, what, what are you doing? I, don't you like Samantha? Oh, I love Samantha, Daddy. But I'm afraid you're going to think I love Samantha more than I love you. So I'm going to leave Samantha in the box and just sit and talk to you. I said, honey, I paid over 120 bucks for Samantha. You're going to play with her and enjoy it. Because isn't the best way to enjoy the giver is to enjoy the gift? We've all given gifts, right? Does anything swell your heart more than you pick out a gift for someone and you see them enjoying it and it gives you more joy than they get? That's what the giver wants. He wants you to enjoy the gift. How many of us overly religious people are denying God pleasure because we turn his gifts of the earth into tests of piety? I'm not gonna push that button as if it's a temptation instead of a blessing. James 1.17 says, every, every, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down, from the Father. Now, I don't want to mess up what I said last week. In fact, if you're hearing two sermons, I wish you would have heard last week about cultivating the quiet. Spiritual disciplines, times in prayer, meditation, quiet with God. Those are essential, I believe, to receive pleasure. Without it, I think pleasures can become addictive. We won't turn them into acts of thanksgiving. They will begin to drive us. But earthly pleasures in an otherwise devoted life are like oases that help us as we pour ourselves out for God to be renewed and they're gifts from God. Especially as an introvert, if I do a weekend conference and I'm getting on a plane and I'm tired and I put the earbuds in and the perfect song comes on. You know, there was a time in high school when I would have been suspicious. Is this song asking me to be converted? Does it remind me I'm converted? Does it celebrate that I'm converted? Today I look at it as, isn't God amazing? He created music with harmony and melody and beats. And he gives some men and women amazing ability with creative lyrics. And then he engineered my ears that can receive that and process it. And it just floods your soul and carries you away. And you receive it as a great gift. J.I. Packer put it this way, contempt for pleasure so far from arguing superior spirituality is actually the sin of pride. Pleasures divinely designed to raise our sense of God's goodness, deepen our gratitude to him, and strengthen our hope of richer pleasures to come in the next world. God says, if you're enjoying pleasure here, wait until you see what I have for you next. If you're anti-pleasure, you're gonna have a real problem in heaven. We can use pleasure then as a solution and not just a problem. Pleasure can really serve our marriages. Look, I've been in marriage ministry for three decades now. Frankly, a lot of marriages break down when they become too utilitarian. It's about paying the mortgage, raising the kids, keeping the house clean, and you stop enjoying each other and it's just work, duty, responsibility, and you just don't like each other anymore. 87% of men who cheat on their wives, want to go back after the affair is over. What does that tell me? The problem wasn't the person they were married to. It was the state of the relationship. 
They were tired of the duty. They wanted to get away and have fun. They wanted to focus on enjoying each other. And so they went aside and said, well, that's not right. And they want to come back to their wife. Well, why don't we do that with our spouses instead of having an affair? As your kids go away to camp, what if you have a marriage camp? What if you say, we, we, we've coasted. You know, we, we need to reconnect. My wife and I had a great summer where um, we were empty nesters, but then all three kids came back between jobs or school. And it was like six or seven weeks. It was wonderful having them back. But we'd been used to being empty nesters and you could enjoy intimacy whenever we wanted. And now the master bedroom is on the main floor and they stayed up later than we did. You don't miss it for a couple weeks, but after a while, you just kind of want to act like a married couple, but it's embarrassing because they're old enough and knowing everything. So we came with the idea, well, look, why don't we just go to a hotel in the afternoon? We'll tell the kids we're going shopping. <laughs> didn't tell them we were shopping for pleasure. They didn't need to know that. We'll just check in and, and we don't have to worry about being quiet. We can have fun. It'll just be great. And it sounded wonderful, but Lisa's, but, but what if somebody recognizes us? That'd be kind of embarrassing. I mean, speaking at Second Baptist, six campuses, you got big screens. Well, it's just the odds are little. I just don't think we have to worry about that. It's, it's fine. So we go to this hotel and there's a woman in front of the counter. We're not carrying any baggage, don't need baggage. A woman in front of the desk and she steps back, says, why don't you go first? I says, no, 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 we're not in a hurry, please go ahead. She goes, no, 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 I insist. So I go up and the woman's asking me the questions. Where do you live? I'm like, oh man, mile and a half away, right on Pin Oak, left on Firethorn. It's, He's got breakfast, yeah, we don't need breakfast, just need one key, we don't, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's kind of obvious what was going on, and she finally gives me the key. I take a step back, and the woman who let us go forward said, Pastor Thomas, my kids just love it when you preach. Thank you for reaching out, and Lisa's turning three shades of red. I think there's no romance going up. There's gonna be a homicide. I wasn't sure I wanted to use the room at that point. And yet, it's a little embarrassing, but can I say something, men? I would so much rather be caught having an affair with my wife than having one with yours. We wanna to tend to our marriages. The Bible calls us in Ecclesiastes. Go then, eat your bread in happiness. Sorry, gluten-free people, Weight Watchers. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. God has already approved your works in Christ times 10. Enjoy life with the woman you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil for which you have labored under the sun. Pleasure can also serve our parenting. Where I see families break apart is that the kids feel like projects. Get your work done, get your chores done, get the right grades, excel in sports so you can get in the right school. And so then kids turn around and teach us, treat us like projects. Well, just give me money and drive me there and don't ask any questions. We stop enjoying each other. And even, especially as Christian parents, if we're not careful, we can come off as anti-pleasure. We don't wanna do that. We wanna know we're advocates of your pleasure as God is advocates of ours. We just want it to be a pure pleasure. My dad used to take our extended family, kids, grandkids, all of that on these cruises. One time the stop was in Costa Maya and they had a beach, Lisa had read about this, where they do uh, massages right on the beach. 
just jump up in your swimsuit. The wind is blowing over. You can hear the waves. And they were amazing. It was 10 bucks, which was great because you could tip them two or three times that, and they were thrilled. After Lisa and I did that, I went and I found my son, and he was with my niece, who's actually also my, my goddaughter. I said, you guys got to do this. It's right on the ocean. They're really good. It's so relaxing. I don't know. Take out the money. Here, I'm paying for it. Tip them well. Go do it. My niece came back about an hour later in this catatonic state, just looks at me and says, best uncle ever. <laughs> now, we, we have to apply this with discernment. Some kids are over-pleasured. They don't need more pleasure. They need a job, all right? So <laughs> take this with wisdom and discernment, but we don't want to look anti-pleasure. We want them to have healthy lives. And also, pleasure serves not just marriage and parenting. It serves holiness. Life breaks us down. Lisa and I were with a young couple. It had been a tough day. Uh, one of the, the baby was kind of sick and crying. Uh, the toddler's acting up, and it was just this long day. Finally, we have dinner, and then the mom is kind of bouncing the baby. She says, all right, Gary, what time is it? I look at my watch, 4.45. 4.45! And she thought it was time to put him down, you know, give him baths. And put him, How are we going to make it for another hour? Because these families, they're giving and they're giving and they're giving. And it is a lot of work. And husbands, if we don't take care of our wives' pleasure, if we don't make our wives' pleasure a priority, we set them up in front of those blinking buttons just to eat their way or to drink their way. A glass of wine makes them feel better. Another glass of wine. A third glass of wine, I'll feel even better. One woman confessed to me, this is when young women were still on Facebook, one time she was on Facebook and an old boyfriend tried to friend request her and earlier in her life, she would have laughed, in your dreams, buddy. And now she's appalled. She finds her finger quivering over the accept. Two years before, she would have laughed. Not a chance, but she'd gotten so thirsty. I wonder what he's doing. Why did we break up? See, it was letting herself get thirsty that set her up. And wives, please, the same for your husbands. Father's Day is coming up. He's not just a paycheck. He's not just a guy to open the pickle jar. Husbands and wives both do better when we're advocates for each other's pleasure. I don't, I don't want to overstate this. I'm not saying you pleasure your way out of sin. We're Christians. There's a time for self-denial, a life of devotion. Pleasure isn't the tool, but it is a tool in an otherwise balanced, healthy Christian life that often the most religious amongst us neglect. I have to learn this lesson again and again. I had gained a bit of weight coming here to Colorado over the last year, gained even more, and I was so frustrated. It's not just appearance, it's I don't want to bore you with old guy stuff, but doctors say, well, you're on the verge of needing statins or sleep apnea. If you'll just keep your weight down, we won't have to go the drug route. And so when it's going the other way, I'm treating myself like I did on that run. Gary, come on, more discipline. Why can't you say no? You're so weak. What's your problem? But it had been a tough year of moving. We've been renovating a house. We're living, we, we were living a, a ways back, about half an hour away in a garage apartment. It was a tough winter. I had knee issues, so I wasn't able to run. And it was, just, it was just a long year. And instead of convicting me, I think God was encouraging me, saying, Gary, where do you get pleasure these days? 
And I wasn't opening the door. In fact, there was only one pleasure, and it's pathetic. I'm sorry to confess it, but I reverted to a six-year-old boy. Sugar makes me feel better. Seriously, if I'm feeling down, whatever it is, if it's sweet, I feel sweet. It lifts me up, and I'm denying myself other pleasure, and so I'm just collapsing that. And then I happen to work at a church half a mile from Crumble Cookies. Good night. Have you ever been there? It's culinary crack. Seriously. It's the death knell of every New Year's resolution, and they lie. They lie through their teeth. I did field research on Friday. This is how committed I am to this job. I did a field trip to Crumble Cookies to make sure this is accurate because they have the milk chocolate cookie up there, 180 calories with an asterisk. So I asked, well, what's with the asterisk? Well, it's, four, it, it, it's one fourth of a cookie. But who eats one-fourth of a cookie, the most perfectly cooked cookie with the right dimension of cookie to cook, of chips to cook? I mean, it's just nobody's going to eat a fourth of the cookie. Yeah, maybe you're a better person than me. And so it's so easy when I'm just work, 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 duty, duty, duty. And then you've got, well, that's going to make me feel better. But here's the thing. This is why I want to end with this because a lot of times I'm saying this and you're saying, but Gary, I'm in a busy season We've got young kids. I can't just turn on a dime. I get that. And I had to look at that. Okay, this is why I'm saying yes to sugar all the time. How can I take a long-term view? And we have been renovating a home. Some of you know that. We actually moved in in May, 11 months after we got it. <laughs> Official citizens of Centennial. And let me just say, if you're ever tempted to renovate a home that's 50 years old, HGTV lies as well. It takes longer than 30 minutes to renovate a home, and it's not nearly as fun. In fact, if you want to experience it, here's how you know what it feels like to renovate a 50-year-old home. Go to your bank or your brokerage tomorrow, uh, liquidate 25% of your net worth, whatever that might be, convert it into U.S. dollars, put it in your bathtub, and light it on fire. Right? You don't have to go through the process. Of rent. Then you know exactly what it feels like. But there was a reason we wanted that home because of the pleasure it could give long-term. We, we've got this deck where I look out over our yard and we love seeing the wildlife come up. We've got Carl the coyote, comes right up to our window. We've got Peter and Beatrix, the bunnies. I'm just hoping Carl never meets Peter and Beatrix or we'll lose them. Um, it's right on the trails, the old Dry Creek Trail, and then it connects with the Highline Trail, and now I'm able to run again. And it is just amazing to run on a perfect surface when John Denver is singing in my ear, Rocky Mountain High, and I can see the Rocky Mountains. For the first time, 39 years of married life, we have a hot tub. I, when I wrote a book called Pure Pleasure that I'm kind of taking some of this out of, it talked about scientifically the happiness-producing effects of warm, swirling water and, and, and couples that it forces them to talk. And so I knew back in February or March, okay, I can't change everything now, but if I want to be healthy, after all, there's a reason I'm pushing the button of sugar. I don't have any other pleasure going on. So if you're finding yourself in front of that button and you keep berating yourself, why can't I say no? Maybe it's because you're not saying yes to pure pleasure, the good gifts of the earth that God has created you to enjoy. What if pleasure isn't the problem? What if it's part of the solution? Let's pray. Father, I, my, my prayer is that everyone would just see you in a new light.
you are such a kind God and a good God. It's created us with bodies and brains so susceptible to so many kind of pleasure because you delight in us. And whatever you forbid is something that would destroy us and that gets turned around. The enemy lies and presents you as anti-pleasure. Recapture our hearts, Lord. Let us see you in your kindness and goodness. Let us say yes to the goodness of this earth 